seated as we now uh, turn to the Word of God. So we have, uh, as you as you can see, if we've reversed our afternoon and our morning services, and uh, what what we're attempting to do here is to be able to have. Um, a live preaching with the Mark service, in both here and in Halifax. And in order to do that, this, those services are at different times. They have to be if I'm going to be preaching at both of them. So um, we, we've, we're, we're doing this schedule now. And you can let us know what you think of this schedule. I know it's a little different, a, little, a few things to adjust. But um, that's what we're looking at. And whether we continue this or not, we'll be, uh, be evaluating that in the, in the future for how it um, affects different ones of us. So that means then that we're doing our catechism uh, sermon this afternoon. You can already see that we're following that afternoon format. Very interestingly, um, we're doing it on the benefits of redemption. And the passage that I have used to, uh, to teach on this in the past, to preach on this, is Colossians 1. And I find that kind of interesting because I saw in the order of worship when Martin was here that he preached on Colossians 1. And uh, I thought about it and I, I thought, okay, well, that is actually beneficial. There was a time when uh, I, I had a week when I was a fairly new Christian that I heard, I think it was five sermons from five different preachers in one week. It was a little over a week. It included two Sundays on 1 Kings 18. So I've never forgotten that First uh, Kings 18, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. If, God is, if the Lord is God, then serve him. If Baal, then serve him. It's the uh, Mount, Mount Carmel event with Elijah. And uh, I went to a camp that week, and I went to a special meeting in the middle of the week, and we had a, a guest preacher, and then the preacher, our regular preacher preached on that the next Sunday and not, not knowing. Um, and it, it was actually very beneficial. You know, the Word of God is so rich, and we can hear... The same passage preached multiple times by different people, and it will always be beneficial to us. So I, I, I never, never looked at what Martin, uh, I haven't listened to the sermon that he preached yet, or even seen the outline, so, uh, but I'm sure it will be quite different too, because I am actually using it as a springboard for teaching on the catechism rather than doing an exposition per se of the, um, of, of the text so we'll be looking at many things in Colossians 1 as we, as we go forward today. You know, we've come to a new subdivision in the Shorter Catechism. You'll remember that in questions 20 through 22, we saw that God, by His grace, did not leave us to perish in our sins, but He sent His Son to be our Redeemer. We saw how He who is fully God came in human form in order to redeem us. There's no redeemer that could be more suitable than that. There's no one that could even be a redeemer apart from the Son of God having become flesh. Then in questions 23 through 28, we looked at the work that he was given to do, that redeemer. What was the work that he was given to do in order that he might redeem us? He was given the office of a prophet, of a priest and of a king. And we saw that he was given that office, those offices to fulfill in both his humiliation when he came here and dwelt among us in lowliness 
and in his exaltation as he ascended up to the right hand of God and now by his power he calls nations to himself. He raises kings and puts them down. He was actually always doing that even when he was here humbly in the earth. As a son of God, he was still maintaining all those kingdoms and doing uh, according to his will. But in humiliation and in exaltation, he is prophet, he is priest, he is king. All the things that are needed for our salvation. And then most recently with questions 29 through 31, you remember we looked at how does this salvation that this Redeemer accomplished for us and all the work that he did, how does he get that to us so that we are able to receive that salvation? And of course we saw, we know that it's by faith, but how does that faith come to us? We saw that it was by the working of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the different ways, like the uh, effectual calling and how that works to, to connect us by faith to all that Christ has done so that trusting in him, we might have eternal life. Today, we come to this new subsection, I guess you could call it, that deals with the benefits we retain, that, that we obtain from Christ's redemptive work when we're those who receive that work. So first, we're going to look at the benefits that we receive in this life. Okay, that's how our catechism is structured. That'll be questions 32 through 36. So today will be question 32 that introduces that. And then we'll look at the benefits we receive at death and at the last day. And that will be questions 37 and 38. After that, we come to the section on the commandments of God and the law of God and, and how it is used in our lives. So again, our question today, question 32, is an introductory question to this whole subsection that introduces us to the benefits we receive from Christ in this life. So let's confess together the words from our catechism. Question 32, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Now, I've often pointed out to you that in today's church, there is a tendency to place too little emphasis on eternal things. We don't stress having an eternal perspective. Too many people are living for what God will do for them right now, today, in this world. But this section that we're in here is about what he does for us now in this world. What are the benefits that we have in this life? And this, these are extremely important. So we don't mean to say in, in emphasizing having an eternal perspective. We mean looking at things of the Lord and not just things of the earth, which include all of these things that we have now as those who are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So uh, it's very important for us to understand these things that will benefit us from all eternity. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then he's talking about seeking these things even that we obtain now in this world from his salvation. So it's important to study about these benefits so that, for, for a couple of reasons, so that we will come to Christ to obtain them. These benefits are, 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 are all very precious and they are essential if we're going to have eternal life. If you don't receive in this life justification, adoption, and sanctification, you're not going to be blessed in the life to come. You're going to be cursed. 
So it's very important. We'll fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life if we realize that these things are here for us now and that we're to obtain them. Secondly, it's important because many popular preachers today, people like Joel Osteen or someone like that, uh, say that if you come to Christ, it guarantees worldly prosperity and success, that you'll be rich and happy, happy, happy in this world. And the Lord does not promise this. Instead, he promises that things that are far better, things like justification, adoption, and sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of God's grace and perseverance in grace to the end. We need to look at this subject so that we will be clear about what we are to expect from God in this world and not be deceived by false teachers who will appeal to us for other things Uh, One of the most popular ones, for example, besides wealth and prosperity, is building up of our own self-esteem, things like that, that that's what God's work is all about in this world. It's not what His work is all about in this world. His business with His people is to redeem them from their sin because they're lost and ruined in their sin. So we need to look at this subject so that we'll be clear about what we are to expect and not be deceived by false teachers. For our scripture reading pertaining to this subject, I've already told you we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1. This passage is very suitable because in the book of Colossians, Paul speaks in particular of what we have in Jesus Christ. And in this opening chapter, he tells us about how excellent the saving work of Christ is and how desirable it is for believers to recognize what they have. Isn't it a sad thing if you have tremendous blessings and you don't even realize how valuable they are? That, he, he, he prays to that end. He, he speaks about these things that we now have. When you get to chapter 2, he denounces things that people wrongly look to instead of Christ. Some of those things that I was just referring to. Things that keep them from seeing the excellence of Christ. Because they're looking at these other things instead. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he speaks about how we ought to live for Christ. So this is all quite worthy of our study. They're, they're doing uh, Colossians down in the valley now. That's why Martin was, uh, was preaching on it when he was here. But, uh, it, but chapter 1 is very suited for the subject that we're looking at today. And that's all that we'll be doing in Colossians at this time where Paul simply lays out the benefits that we have from Christ as our Redeemer. So please give attention now as I read this to you. Again, it's Colossians chapter 1, and it is the Holy Word of God. So it is profitable for our instruction and for our sanctification. Colossians 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit 
as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints." To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And there we end the reading of God's word. What a great God we have that it is his great desire. He willed to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel. The blessings that come to us as God's people who believe among the nations. God willed to make those treasures of his grace known to us. So may God add his blessing. To the reading of his holy word. Paul begins this letter with a typical introduction describing himself as an apostle and Timothy as a brother and making it clear that he is writing to the saints, people who know the Lord Jesus in Colossae. 
And then in verse 3 through 11, you can see how Paul's words breathe of the excellence of the benefits that we have in Christ. The benefits that these disciples received filled Paul and Timothy with gratitude. They were very thankful for what God had done in these people. You know how it is. We uh, were just talking before the service about a couple of people that are, are, are receiving the word of God and welcoming it. And what a delight it is when you see that. Uh, Lori was talking about um, Dora, her, her mother-in-law, and to see her hunger for the word. And we mentioned uh, a, a man that's attending church in, um, in Halifax that is, is seeking the Lord. What a, what a blessing it is. The benefits that then filled Paul with thanksgiving and Timothy. They knew that the change in the Colossians' lives had come from Almighty God by His divine power and working. They were all the more thankful because God was doing the same thing in other parts of the world as well. And they were sometimes even involved in those other places. That's what they speak of in verse 6 that's happening in the other places too. The change in their lives, in these disciples' lives, was a change in this life, you see, that could be observed. It wasn't a change only that was in the life to come, but right here, right now in this world, these people had been transformed. Epaphras had seen what God had done and had reported it to Paul and Timothy. The benefits in this life that the Colossians were receiving, they were a people that were transformed by the working of Almighty God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is great reason to give thanks when we see people who have received these benefits of Christ's salvation. Paul almost always tells those that he writes to how thankful he is for all of the benefits and the blessings that he sees in their lives. He doesn't do this in Galatians or 2 Corinthians. He does it in most other places. Why not there, those? Probably because he was concerned that they were, in fact, rejecting the grace of God. He was writing to rebuke them. But ordinarily, it is something that is included in his letters. You also should be, but I say that to say that, that Paul doesn't just say this as a matter of course. You know how people will get up to give a speech and they always say something positive or whatever just because they're supposed to. Even if there's nothing positive to say, they make something up. Paul doesn't do that. When he writes to the Galatians, he says, I'm grieved about you. I, you're, you're, you're in trouble. You're not going in the right path. So when he says, you receive these tremendous blessings at Colossian, we give thanks for what God is doing there, it's, it's real. You also should be thankful when you see such benefits in the lives of, of God's people. Without them, just think where the people would be that have received the blessings. I mean, where would you be without the gospel and without the blessings of Jesus Christ? I'm sure that I would have had at least one failed marriage by now, if not a lot more. Uh, I can't imagine that anybody would be patient to live with me unless they know Christ. And uh, God is very, very faithful to us in the way that he works. The people would be without God and without hope in the world. If we didn't have the blessing of salvation, that's the greatest thing. We'd be estranged from him. We'd be cut off. We'd be headed for eternal ruin. And not just 
not just ruin, but eternal ruin. Sometimes you see people's lives that are all messed up in this world. But we're talking about eternal ruin that goes on and on forever. But what a cause for thanksgiving when we see someone coming or that has come and has received the blessings of salvation that God gives. There, there is in verse 5, it says, hope laid up for them in heaven. It's an eternal thing. Do you give thanks for this? Do you give thanks for how God's grace has come to you and to your children, to the other members in our church, to Christians all over the world? You know, it's a good thing, like if you pray for the people in the church, and you should be doing that in our congregation, is you maybe have a list of names that you go through at different times and uh, to, to give thanks for them when you pray for them. If you don't do that, then why don't you start doing it? Just looking at them or hearing about them should make you thankful. And look, not only did Paul and Timothy give thanks when they heard that these folks had the fruit of new life in Christ, they also pray in verses 9 through 11 that the Colossians will enjoy even more of the benefits of salvation in this life. They say that they pray for this without ceasing. These benefits are much more important than than any physical health or wealth or safety for the saints in Colossae. And so it is a constant matter of their prayer. These wonderful benefits can be increased as well. They're not stagnant. We look to see Christians grow. Not that we can be more justified or more adopted than we already are, but that we can grow in our understanding of what it means to be justified and to be adopted and to live out the reality of those benefits in a more real way. We can live in gratitude for forgiveness and change our whole attitude toward other people. And in the joy of sonship, which will give us a a hope that will carry us through trials and afflictions of every sort. So Paul and Timothy pray for such an increase. And then, of course, we can be more holy. That's the one where there is really visible increase, that we grow, we're sanctified, and we grow more and more like Christ in this life. We should pray for these benefits right now that our brothers and sisters and ourselves would have. Look at how Paul and Timothy speak of the increase they are praying for, increase that will come to the Colossians in this life. They say, We do not cease to pray for you, verse 9, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's a prayer not only that the Colossians would understand what God wants them to do, but also who the Lord is that wants these things to be done. You don't really obey very well if you only know what you ought to do, And you don't realize more fully who you're doing it for. That changes things quite a lot, doesn't it? So he prays for both of that. And in verse 10, he prays that you, you Colossians, may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You can see here how walking worthy of the Lord and pleasing him involves both being fruitful in every good work, as well as increasing in the knowledge of God. It's about walking in relation to him as our God. So it's very, very relational. Our God who has redeemed us 
and who is giving us a growing understanding and appreciation of who he really is, especially as it is revealed in what he has done. And then the prayer goes on in verse 11 to ask for power to live this new life that is enriched with the benefits of Christ's redemption. We need strength, don't we? So verse 11 says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. So you mean to say here that all of these things are things that we can look to have in this life? These things that, that Paul and Timothy are praying for? Yes, they are. If you have the benefits of Christ's salvation, you know how precious they are. And surely you want more of those benefits, more of a fullness of those benefits. Do not be discouraged as you labor along with the flesh because God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yearn for these things more than you do. Look to the Lord your God. Do you pray for these things for your friends and for your loved ones and for the churches that you know? So you see, you give thanks for these benefits and then you pray for an increase of these benefits because they're so precious and they're so valuable. But now we need to look at what these benefits in this life are. We've already seen that they are justification, adoption, and sanctification, as well as the benefits that go along with these in our catechism question. But now I want to explore each of these, the three principal ones, in an overview fashion. We'll look at them We'll not look at them in detail today because we're going to do that. This is an introductory question. We'll, look, we'll have a whole week to look at justification, another week to look at adoption, another to look at sanctification. So uh, we'll, we'll save that for future sermons. But today is an overview as we look through the lens of Colossians. In the catechism, the order is justification, adoption, and sanctification. But in Colossians, the order is adoption, justification, and sanctification. Colossians presents these benefits not in so many words, but more in an organic way that's typical of the Scripture. The purpose in Colossians, you see, is not simply to lay out the benefits, but to show us how excellent they are, the sweet excellence of them all. So we will follow the order that's in Colossians rather than in our catechism, doing adoption first and then justification and then sanctification. So first we have adoption. You all know what adoption is. It's the official legal taking of a child who is not your biological son or daughter to be legally your son or your daughter. Even though you didn't conceive the child, you take that child into your home and legally take on full responsibilities of a parent. You become the child's parents by decree. And the child becomes your heir to carry on your name and your estate to receive your inheritance. And God recognizes that children who are adopted are fully children of the parents who adopt them. When we speak of God adopting us as his sons and daughters, it refers to the father in particular taking us into his own household and giving us an inheritance in his household. It's a wonderful thing when you see some poor 
orphan or rejected child who has maybe been passed around from from one home to another and homes that maybe are not fit. And you see that child given a home in a loving, with, with loving, caring parents that become his own parents. It's even more wonderful that we as mere creatures should be made sons of the living God. John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And this is even more remarkable when we consider that we had willingly walked out on God in the garden to give ourselves over to Satan and that we had made ourselves enemies of God and of his house and were filled with hostility toward God and malice toward him and his house. So much so that, well, you can see how we treated God's son, who obviously represents God's house, when he came into this world. That shows the extent of the malice that we had toward the family and household of God. And yet he adopted us by his marvelous salvation to bring us into his home that he should redeem us and adopt us is inconceivable love. But Paul presents, or, or Paul presents adoption with thanksgiving to God in verses 12 through 18. You see how he opens the subject in verse 12, still referring to his prayer of thanksgiving with the words, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance Of the saints in light. Now, you know that one who has an inheritance is one who is a son. We're given an inheritance with the saints, the holy people of God. This is sonship because it is sons who are given inheritance in the Father's house. Verse 13 reminds us that we have had a couple, we have have had a complete change of kingdoms. Verse 13 think of the home that we were in, the home that we're brought to. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, that power that encompassed our whole lives of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Just think of this. You are in bondage to Satan under the power of darkness. You are trapped by your own native rebellion and corruption. And you are held in that trap by your father, the devil, who would not release you. You were helpless under the power of darkness in his house and could not escape. Israel in Egypt is a picture of that slavery. But the Father qualified you, qualified you to receive an inheritance in his house by delivering you from the power of darkness. He brought you out of that house that he might bring you in to his house. That's what it says of Israel, isn't it? I brought you out that I might bring you in. And that house is called the kingdom of the son of his love, the son that he delights in. It's a house that already has a son that is dearly loved by the father and a son that has been perfectly loved from all eternity. It's a wonderful house where there is mutual love and affection and where there is beautiful order and harmony, where all things are done well. You are so unfit to live in this house, so unsuited to live in this house, so unable to escape from the devil's house. 
But the Lord rescued you. Verse 14 explains how he qualified you for adoption. For context, I'll read it with verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. It is by redemption of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of His love. This is extraordinary. Redemption was familiar to those who lived in the times that the Bible was written. We don't talk about redemption so much in our day maybe redeeming a coupon or something, but it's about as far as it goes. If you were a slave, though, and someone set you free, that person was your redeemer. He brought you out of that that darkness and that bondage, you see, and liberated you. There are two ways that that, that they might go about redeeming you, that your redeemer might redeem you. If you had been captured, say in war or something like that, or taken uh, to be a slave, then they would redeem you by conquering those enemies who had captured you. Remember uh, David, when uh, he went out with his men to war and he came back and his wives and children had all been taken as slaves. And they went to redeem them, to deliver them by, by conquering those enemies who had come and taken them. If, on the other hand, you had been purchased as a slave, maybe your family had run on hard times and had to sell you in order to pay their, their debts so that they could pay and hoping that they could buy you back at some point. Well, then the Redeemer would come along and he would pay that price to set you free. So it's redemption by purchase. So we, we have here with the Lord's redemption, what we have here is redemption that incorporates both of those kinds of redemption at the same time. On the one hand, because as it says, Satan had taken us by deception when he had no right to us, Christ came to defeat him and to set us free. That's why it speaks of him delivering us from the power of darkness. He broke the hold that Satan had on us the same way that Pharaoh's hold was broken when Israel was delivered by the hand of God through all the plagues. On the other hand, because we had sinned against God by abandoning him when we were properly his servants and should have happily been continuing in his service, he redeemed us also by paying the debt that we had incurred. He paid the full penalty of our sin that we could in no way pay. It was a huge penalty because it was not just an earthly master to whom we belonged and rebelled, but it was God the Father Almighty. A crime against an infinite person requires an infinite payment. And what is all the more extraordinary about all this is that it is the son of God's love who has always been in his house, who agreed to pay the penalty, who came into the world to bear our sins and who who has borne all our sins in his own body on the cross. Compare that to the resentful elder brother of the prodigal son. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? We were the ones who had rebelled and who had defied our father. And it was a grievous thing, of course. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit. And yet, our father appointed our redemption through his son, sending him who came willingly to redeem us in this way. 
by his own body on the cross. This noble son who is himself the true God is the very one who redeems us, who pays the high price of our redemption. Look at how Paul describes him here, verse 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. These words make it clear that he is none other than the son of God. There can be no mistake about it. He is the one who created everything, and he is the one for whom everything was created. And he is the one who holds everything together. Only God can be, only, such things can only be said of one who is God. What a marvelous thing to have such a redeemer as this. What efforts were expended to bring about our adoption What condescension on the part of this mighty prince, this one who is none other than God's eternal son. What a marvel that he should be the agent of our redemption when it meant that he had to stoop and come down among us as a man and then stoop even more to die the cursed death of the cross. How thankful we should be, how humbled we should be, how indebted we are. And now we must move on to look at the next benefit that we are given in this life, the benefit of justification. Now, we've already lapped into justification quite a lot in talking about redemption. Justification and adoption overlap very much. They are different, though, because adoption is, as we have seen, our acceptance in God's house as God's sons and heirs, Whereas justification is the legal declaration that we are righteous rather than condemned and guilty. So there's a a difference here. Let me explain. Because of our sin, we were completely unacceptable to God. We had the great transgression of having rejected God as our God. As we saw, it was a sin of infinite proportions from which we had to be pardoned. God would not have transgressors as his sons. He could not adopt those who were transgressors that were guilty because they would defile his holy house. The only sons that he will have are righteous sons because he is a holy God. As long as we had an outstanding transgression that had not been fully dealt with, we were completely unfit to live in his house. There was something standing against us. What is more, God's sons must not only be free of transgression, they must also be noble sons, sons who are worthy, sons of the highest merit who have met all that God requires of them. Even if we had not rejected him as our God, we had not lived for him as our God. We had not shown the obedience to him and the service to him that is required of someone who is going to be a son in the house of God. To summarize, you might say that we were both supremely guilty 
and supremely lacking in the merit that was required to be God's son at the same time. So we, we were supremely guilty and supremely lacking. Therefore, we needed to be justified, which means not just to be no longer guilty, but also to have the required merit to live in God's house. Not just in a neutral place, you might say, where all the sin was covered, but also brought to have that virtue that is, is called for in a legal way. So somehow we needed to be made righteous. Somehow our sin debt had to be fully paid. Full punishment had to be given to that sin. Somehow we had to obtain merit that is required of God's sons. But it is in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, that we have redemption. We could not meet the requirement either of paying the debt or attaining the merit God requires. So Jesus did that for us as our representative. He paid the debt. He attained the merit for the whole kingdom that he redeemed. In verse 18, Paul shows how adoption had its inception, its beginning or its starting point in in this firstborn son of God. With reference to the whole church, he says of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The body is the whole body of adopted sons, right? All those that he redeems. The whole church that will receive the inheritance at last. Jesus is paying their debt. But in paying their debt, he died, but then rose as the firstborn from the dead. He rose as the son of God who was crucified for his people. Do you see how this works? Jesus meets the requirements for the whole church. He fully pays the penalty And he he has merit sufficient for the whole church. He meets all the requirements, fulfills all the demands for all of us. That's why he is the firstborn. The church was completely dead and cut off from God until he came and started life there. When he joined himself to us, he took upon him our sins and entered into our death which brought him to the cross. But then in continuing to serve God, even in that capacity and paying the penalty of our sin, he lifted all of us out of death when he was raised from the dead. He is the firstborn. He brought life into the whole body by coming, by living, by dying for our sins, and by rising again. Life begins with him, the firstborn, for all the body. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 shows how according to the Father's kind plan, Jesus fills up everything that is lacking in us. You know how in in Hebrews, it always talks about how he has all that we need. He was made perfect, it says, or complete. He, he, He became all that was needed. For us to have the, our sins covered and to have the merit that God requires for us to live in his house. Look at Colossians 1, 19 through 20. 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. God was pleased for Jesus to have everything that the rest of us need. Where do we look to find what we need to live in God's house? To Jesus Christ. And then by his merit and by his suffering, he makes peace through the blood of the cross, you see. That is what it means when it says that he reconciles all things to himself. He reconciles us by paying for our sin on the cross and by living the life that we are called to live as God's son. Both of those things, not one without the other. He did it all and God accepts what he did for the justification of us all. He declares us to have completely met the demands that are necessary for us to live in God's house as God's sons. We haven't done it ourselves, but Jesus has done it and he has become one with us so that what he did is credited to us. He takes care of it all. He is, to use the language of Hebrews, made perfect for us, made complete. Therefore, because Jesus has reconciled us, we are completely justified so that we are fully accepted as God's sons. As far as our legal standing is concerned, nothing more could be done. Nothing needs to be done. Our sins are completely pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, and we are perfectly righteous when we believe in him. So justification is our legal standing that makes us eligible for adoption, but we also need to be changed in our character and conduct if we're going to live in God's house. This work is called sanctification. It wouldn't be a good thing if you were made righteous like we just talked about, justified by the merit of Jesus Christ, by the merit of another, and then you were just left the same. What would it be for you to be in God's house and still to have all this sin and all this attitude and all these things? That would not be a good situation. So sanctification is the actual change that Christ brings into our lives by delivering us from the power of sin so that we can actually live for God. This transformation is absolutely essential, of course, else we would not be at all fit to live in God's house. And it's for two reasons. We would not be fit because we would be miserable there. Imagine being in the presence of a holy almighty God when we were yet hostile toward him. Imagine being with him who is holy when we have no use for holiness. There had to be a change. It's a change that we looked at last time with effectual calling by which God enables us to see our sin as sin. How wrong it is for us to have ever rebelled and to continue to rebel against God. And so that we loathe ourselves on account of our sin. An effectual calling by which we see the beauty and the perfection of Christ as our Savior. And are sweetly drawn to Him, yearning for His salvation through the cross. An effectual calling by which our wills are renewed. So that we choose to come to Jesus Christ and to give our lives to him and to believe in him, looking to him for salvation so that we actually do come and we actually embrace him, receiving and resting upon him alone for our salvation as he is offered in the gospel. This change, effectual calling that brings about regeneration or the new birth is sometimes called 
definitive sanctification. It could also be called initial sanctification. It has to do with God changing us so that we become willing servants who seek his salvation. That's what regeneration does. It makes us true believers. We have seen this change in our previous three sermons, which were about how Christ's saving work is applied to us. But all who experience a factual calling or this definitive sanctification will readily testify that though they have come to serve Christ, and it is a complete change, they're completely renewed. They weren't serving Christ, and now they are. They weren't looking for salvation, and now they are. It's a complete, definitive change from this to this. But all who have that will testify that they come short of what is called for in heaven. They come short of the glory of God. They're still not fit to live in the glory of God's household in eternity. We're not fit to live in God's house because sin is still present with us. But one of the great benefits that we have in Christ in this life is that he begins to change us, which gives us hope. What we call progressive sanctification. Having changed us initially definitive sanctification, our Lord continues his work in us to make us more and more holy, progressive sanctification. We become more and more like Jesus by progressive sanctification. And to us is promised, not in this life, but at death, final sanctification. That's the third kind of sanctification. Final sanctification is the completion of of the transformation when sin is completely eradicated and we become perfectly holy. It's also called glorification. We will look at this in time. But for today, as our present subject is the benefits that we have from Christ's redemption in this life, our focus is simply on definitive and progressive sanctification by which we are being prepared for glory in this life. Prepared to live in God's house. So sanctification is presented to us in Colossians 1 also. In verse 21 through 22, the whole work of sanctification from definitive sanctification to final sanctification is spoken of. Let's walk through it beginning with verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So this isn't talking about the problem of us being legally cut off from God because of our sin, guilty in that way. This is talking about us hating God, alienated by our, our wicked works. And now, now he's changed us, he's reconciled us. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were alienated by sin and and didn't love the true God. That's why people make up idols, because they don't like God. And you see, until Christ redeems us, we don't want the true God. We want a substitute. But you see that Paul tells the Colossians they have received this great benefit of, of reconciliation. They've been changed from being those who reject God with malice to those who serve God in love. Paul goes on in verse 22 to explain more about how Christ has reconciled us. Yet now you are reconciled, in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the goal, isn't it? A work that he does that makes us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Not just legally, positionally so, but actually so. When we are brought into his body by effectual calling, he then works in us that he might at last present us as his bride without spot, holy, blameless, above reproach in God's sight. Not just in the sight of other people, which can be pretty artificial, but in God's sight, who sees right down to the heart. He does this work called sanctification that actually makes us holy. That work is begun in this life. And verse 23 tells you, you get to enjoy this benefit and all the other benefits of salvation if you simply continue trusting in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is keep on looking to him for your salvation, which you will do if you are truly in him. He says, verse 23, if indeed, okay, this is all going to come out. You're going to be presented holy before God and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith. If you're not in faith, there's no hope. If you're not trusting in Christ, there's no hope. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, not everyone believed, but it was preached, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, it is the gospel that is preached, that Christ came and died for sins so that we might be reconciled to God, and that if we believe in him, we will receive the inheritance Complete justification and sanctification. As Paul sums it up in verse 27, our hope of glory is that Christ is in us. That's what gives us the hope. I can't do this. I can't save myself. But the benefits come from trusting in him who can save. We haven't time to look at it in detail, but Paul explains that as a minister... He fully exerts himself with the goal of seeing disciples brought to this perfection that he has talked about, where they're holy and blameless and above reproach in the very sight of God. Verse 28 through 29, he says of Christ, him we preach. This is how Paul does this work so that we continue in the faith, believing the gospel. He keeps preaching the gospel. He says, him, Jesus, we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may do what? Present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, that everyone may reach that goal of being holy and without blame before God, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul says, to this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Paul says, I can't do this work of the ministry either. It's I do it by the grace of God. And the work that's done is by the grace of God. And the whole work is that I as a minister and you as those who receive the word are are told to look to Christ. We trust in Christ. We look to him to bring about this, this saving work. Paul earnestly preaches Christ because it is only through faith in him that anyone has 
these benefits that bring us to glory. It is as ministers preach Jesus and disciples trust in him that those disciples are brought to perfection in Christ Jesus. They are taken from alienation and from exclusion into divine sonship, from guilt and condemnation to justification, complete forgiveness and righteous standing with God, and from rebellion and enmity in their hearts with malice to reconciliation and holiness that will be made perfect and complete. How excellent these benefits are in this life. Let nothing keep you away from these benefits. Diligently pursue these benefits. Run after these benefits. Seek these benefits. Cry out to God for these benefits. These are the blessings that are beyond all other blessings that God has given to His people in the gospel. They're yours right now. If you look to Jesus Christ, you will be adopted. You will be justified. You will be sanctified. This is the promise of the gospel. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we remember how Paul began these words to the Colossians. It was with thanksgiving, how glad he was to see that there were people who had received the treasure of the gospel. Father, there is nothing that can be compared with the blessing of the gospel. Oh, Lord, if only we believe that, if only we had a sense of the, the value and the benefit of what we have received by Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, we confess that we are dull in our understanding. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and help us as the apostle also prays that we will grow in our understanding of what you have done in our knowledge of Christ and of the blessings that we have through him as our redeemer. Father, we pray that more and more we would come to cherish this salvation For we know that things will be much better for us if we do. That all of our problems in this world will seem a very little thing. And Father, that our concerns will be for for others, that they may know this salvation. That rather than wanting something else of them and being discontent and dissatisfied about this and that, we will be discontented and dissatisfied that they do not know you. And it will be our effort to, to introduce them to you. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us, O Lord, that you would help us to to work and to to truly have this this sense of of the benefits that we have in this present life and the benefits that they lead to in the life to come. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son and for what he has done for us. It is in his glorious and holy name that we pray in hope. Amen. Let's